Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. I will read it and pray and then have some things to share with you today I'm really excited about. So here we go. Verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 9. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Amen. <laughs> Father, what a beautiful passage to look at today. And I pray you would, as you work with zeal towards fulfilling your plan to make Christ known in all the world, would you give us that zeal? Not a zeal for Christmas trees and fun songs on the radio, but a zeal to take the opportunity and point to Jesus, to our friends, to our family members, to our neighbors, to people who don't know him and who maybe, um, maybe even be sad during this time or may have, have un unwarranted happiness because they don't know you. Whatever it is, Lord, fill us with a zeal today. Lord, open up our ears and our hearts to receive your word. What we are not, make us. What we have not, give us. Teach us your word, grant your spirit, and transform our lives for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what an awesome passage, right? Um, what God has to promise the world through the line of his people, Israel, is a Christmas gift that is exactly what the world needs. It's not a refresher or renew, a renewal of principles or laws. God knew from the start that the only solution to sin and all it brings with it is himself and his righteous rule. And he chose to bring about this solution by sending his son, his only son. As he said to Abraham, as he said, offer, go up to the mountain and offer to me your son, your only son, whom you love. He builds this emphasis on. And now we see in this passage a fulfillment of what that was a picture of when we see God's son, his only son, whom he loves, given to us as a baby. We, and I, I mean specifically we at Crosspoint especially, love to hear news of the promise of a new baby, right? I mean, it's all over the place. If you don't notice anything else about this church, it's that there are babies here, Right? Um, that joy that we have in hearing that promise increases with the level of relationship we have with each other. So consider this. I can smile and wave at a baby as he strolls by at Walmart. Baby, I don't know. 
I may even send a message expressing my excitement for a distant relative or a friend who has just announced that they were expecting a baby. I can enjoy spending time with babies who grow up in my church and church family through the years, but when my baby is born, it's different. When my baby is born into the world, I race to the hospital. I sit by my wife's side through it all, or at least as long as she'll have me there. I encourage her through the labor and am there to be the, the first one to perform the first medical procedure of her life by cutting the cord and bringing her to her mother. Such a wonderful experience, right? It's amazing. I'm the first to rejoice with joy inexpressible from that moment on. But why do I do all those things? Why does it change? Because the child is mine. Because my, my girls are my, my gift from God to me. I don't get to keep them forever. Found that out later. That stinks. <laughs> but what level of rejoicing at the birth of, birth of Christ do you find yourself with today? Because the, the high point of the passage we looked at says, to us a child is born and to us a son is given. This question is not dependent on our earthly circumstances. If the Christ has been given to you, to us, it is not enough to smile and wave in passing. It's not enough to send Joseph and Mary a greeting card in the mail. It's not enough to say, we'll see the new baby when it's time for him to come to church. If we're talking about the Son of God given to us, we can only respond as the shepherds did in Luke 2.15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, after they'd announced who this baby is going to be, the shepherds said to one another, Hey, let's call the mom and see, you know, when's a good time to come over and see the baby. We don't want to enter. It's not like that. That's a good thing to do today, by the way. I'm not advocating for, you know, when the youngs have their baby in the next couple of days. Let's not all, let's go see this thing that the Lord has done. No, that's, that's, nope, give them time. Give them space. That's good. They're not giving birth to Jesus. This is a different thing. So, so the shepherds say, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. What did they leave behind? Their, their livelihood, that's their job. Your whole job is to sit there and look at the sheep. But when they found out this great news, what did they do? They left it. Because there was a greater lamb to go and see, the lamb of God. Or consider the wise men. They came from far away in order to bring their gifts. Today, I encourage you, leave all behind and go to God's word and see what the Lord has made known to you. Come, let us adore him. In verse one, we see God making a reversal of expectation. There would be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the seas. God gives in unexpected ways. Whereas two tribes of Israel were formerly brought into contempt because of sin, God brings the opposite of glory. For whom? The Gentiles, the nations, non-Israel. This would have been somewhat of an offense to Israelites reading this, to, to Jews reading this and thinking, what do you mean? You're talking about the contempt against our people, and then you go and you give this great thing to the nations? Of all people. God, of course, does not abandon Israel. And I'll point to Romans 11:2 for that simple phrase that Paul says. He has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He knows whose 
are his and he will not forget them. But whereas he does not abandon Israel by blessing those who are not Israel, he reveals that it was his plan from long before. Even to Abraham, when he says, through your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be what? Blessed. The promise of God at Christmas is not, I'll finally give you what you've been asking for. It's, I'll finally reveal a gift greater than you could imagine. A small child born for you this day in the city of David. Rather than heaping the entirety of this gift on one recipient nation, he expands the reach of this gift so far to a greater number of recipients, to anyone who will come, anyone who will put their faith in Christ. If Israel is to be truly Israel, they would seek to be glorifying God in the best way possible. And the only true way to accomplish this is by obediently being a light to the nations to show who the true God of all is. So whereas Israel might look at this and say, oh, the nations, we don't want anything to do with the nations, we're separate. Well, God's saying, look, I didn't separate you so that you would have nothing to do with them. I separated you so that you'd be holy, so that you would be mine, and so that people would come and become a part of that. But they missed it. Don't we know the blessing it is to be among God's people? I hope you know that today. I hope even maybe as you were eating pancakes and sausage and orange juice this morning, you noticed that blessing of being around the people of God. Have you experienced the joy of salvation in Christ? Have you shared in mutual rejoicing over that salvation with others? Does your joy in him create a longing to make him known wherever you are? Yes! <laughs> Somebody gets it, yes. <laughs> Amen. All right, Micah, you need to come uh, preach the sermon here. Oh, sorry, Miles. <laughs> I'm still getting names. It's been three months. Anyhow. Okay, it was a turning point from, a turning from God that brought the tribes of Zebulon and Naphtali into contempt, as we see in that first verse. And such are all who turn from him today. Um, if you want to know more about Zebulun and Naphtali, it starts all the way back in Judges chapter 1. You can see it in verse 30 and verse 33, when they did not obey God's call to um, move into the land that he had given them. So has he shown his glory on your life? His plan for his people is to bring them from contempt because of their sin to glory because of the presence of the Son of God among them. And so he is today as we worship together. This next section, um, verses two through five, talks about a light of joy to all people. So these people mentioned in the beginning here are those who walked in darkness, deep darkness, over their whole land and thus ruling over their hearts. Does that sound familiar at all? Is that still true of the world today? Is the world largely in darkness? Yeah, there's, a, there's an immediate application we can make from this. Because the, 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 the good Jewish reader of this at the time would say, yeah, the nations are in deep darkness. They don't know Yahweh. They don't know the true God. And the same is true for us today. So what does God do? He shines a light. Does that sound a little bit like Genesis 1? God's shining light into darkness? Could it be that there are perhaps repeated ideas and themes in the Old Testament that find their true meaning in the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And that this could be one of them. Shouldn't we think that the good Jewish believer reading Isaiah as he waits for Messiah would have seen this passage to show that this is indeed what God has been working to towards literally since the beginning? 
God is speaking in this language to remind them, look, way back when everything started, when I said I was going to create, I looked and there was darkness over the face of the earth and I said, let there be light. And now he's doing that again. He's shining the light of truth into hearts of people who do not know him. And we are those to whom God has shown so great a light, a light we are called to bear to each other in our times of darkness and to shine into the lives of those apart from Christ who walk exclusively in darkness. How funny that we put lights all around our houses at Christmas time. It's as though the truth of what God is doing is not as hidden from a fallen world as we might think. That you might even be able to look at someone's Christmas lights all over their house and instead of calling them Clark Griswold, say, have you ever wondered why you decorate your house so much? Like, what's the purpose of that? Is it a competition with your neighbor? (laughs) Sometimes. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's a competition with yourself. I mean, what's the point of hanging lights in the first place? What's the point of why we don't just turn the lights off while we're sitting here? Because there's darkness without light. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, folks, easy gospel entry into conversation with this. Do you want to go look at Christmas lights? Have you ever thought about why we hang up Christmas lights? You could just go right off of that. There's so many of those things at Christmas time. That's part of why I love it so much. In verses 3 through 5, God promises both joy and salvation. And he gives us some illustrations of that. He says, you've multiplied the nations, you've increased its joy. They rejoice with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So there's illustrations in here. It's a joy like that of a nation rejoicing in its multiplication, increasing its offspring, and building a sense of national pride, bringing joy to each family, receiving new life, and the promise of a legacy that will endure to yet another generation. Israel would have understand this, understood this kind of thing for, looking with, with a forward-looking joy. The joy promised is like that of a farmer who wakes to a harvest greater than he could have even hoped for. A promise of joy greater than any army celebrating their victory, celebrating both with the spoils of that victory and the fact that death that was so near to them has had no claim on them. The people of God have an ever-increasing source of joy as they look to the God who immeasurably loves and blesses them. The people of God have a great hope of future grace as seen in verse 4. God's people have always needed saving from the oppression brought on by sin, and time after time, God defeats his earthly enemies and frees his people to live under his good reign, but what do they do? They turn right back to idols. They turn right back to their false ways of turning away from God. I mean, this is the whole book of Judges, which, um, little, a little preview, next year we'll be going into the book of Judges and we're going to see this cycle repeat over and over again where God's people turn from God and he sends the enemies of God's people to rule over them and they say, oh God, please help us. And he sends a savior and the savior comes and helps them and then they go right back to it over and over and over again. But God, in his ultimate secret rescue plan, as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, now sends to us the solution. He sends to us a child born for us, a son given to us. This is the great hope of the people of God. Because God is not like wicked Rehoboam, who promised a harsher reign than his father Solomon before him. In 1 Kings 12, 13 through 14, it says the king, that is Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, who was the son of David, thank you, 
It says, the king Rehoboam answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Yikes. Not a very good king. Whose kid is that anyway over there? Rather, the son of God, Jesus, who will come to reign, is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's different than any other king that God's people had ever known. As the Mighty God who will break away any and all devices of oppression placed on his people, the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, verse 4, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. We have to wait patiently for such deliverance, though, knowing his ways are higher than our ways, and nothing comes to us that escapes his sovereign rule. We see Isaiah writing here um, to, to give hope to this, and he's, he's even kind of speaking in the past tense here. The yoke has been broken. There's a, there's a surety of what God is going to do. We see this in other places in the New Testament, especially in Romans 8, verses 29 through 30. But ultimately, what we need to see here is that when God says he will do something, we have to see it. We have to truly count it as good as done now. This is why we read in scripture that Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. God works outside of time and space. That's not a hindrance to him. He knew you would be his believer in Christ before you even believed because he knew that his son would obey perfect, perfectly and die on the cross in your place. We live in a point in redemptive history where we can very effectively look backwards and forwards with great clarity. In the Old Testament, people waited patiently, not having a full understanding of what was to come. In the New Testament, Christ has come and will come again. And that is indeed what Advent means, by the way, is the appearing. And so there's not only one Advent of Christ, but there is a second one to come. We'll get to that later. So we wait in patience especially at this time of year where all around us, we ought to be being reminded even from secular sources that Christ has come and will indeed come again. One of the reasons why I love listening to those really old Christmas songs on the radio is because back then when, they, when Nat King Cole recorded and Frank Sinatra and all those awesome guys, they didn't leave out things like the name of Christ in some of those old Christmas carols. So you can hear secular radio stations saying something about Jesus. That's incredible. I mean, come on, how much do we complain about how the world turns its back on Christ? And then Christmas comes along and we're like, well, you're not doing that right. Starbucks says holiday instead of Christmas. I mean, we find all sorts of stuff to complain about when really we have to take the opportunities that we have to make Christ known to people who do not know him. So Advent is not only for us to look back on his first coming, and to celebrate that, but to eagerly anticipate with great confidence he will come back to bring his eternal kingdom in fullness. And we can even use that in evangelistic strategy as well. Did you know that Jesus came as a baby? Well, yeah, I heard that story. Did you know he's coming again? Are you ready for him to come again? Verses six through seven gives us the, the power behind God's um, plan here, the zeal of the Lord who gives his son the line that shows us how serious God is about fulfilling his promises. What means will God go to to fulfill his plan? To what length will he go? In zeal, 
What does the Lord give to his people that can be the only one who will bring into effect all he has planned, all he has promised from all the way back in that verse we read, Genesis 3.15. That Genesis 3.15 verse is super important. Theologians call it the Proto-Evangelion, meaning the first gospel. It's the first point in the book of the Bible, and it comes pretty early. Genesis is the first book. The third chapter is pretty soon. It's right after the fall of man, and God says to, to, to Eve and Adam, he talks in, in the presence of Adam and Eve and the serpent, and he says that I'm going to send someone that will be the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. When I, I, mixed feelings about promoting a movie like The Passion of the Christ. Many, many may, maybe have seen it. But um, one of my favorite parts in that movie is when Jesus is praying in the garden, and this isn't biblical necessarily, but it's a cool picture in the movie. Um, Jesus is praying in the garden of Gethsemane before he would be betrayed, and um, a serpent slithers in. And it's a real creepy scene. Um, but the serpent comes in, and you don't see it. It doesn't get gruesome or anything, but you see Jesus' foot just stomp down on the serpent. And you know he's going not to the cross as a, one who's defeated, but one who's going in victory. And that this is what God meant when he said, I will send one who will crush the head of the serpent, who will undo all the evil works of the evil one that we've partaken in and that we're guilty of, right? But we will be saved from that. He will, he will save us from the rule of anyone other than himself. And so what does he give us? A son. Let's point out the obvious here. This is not just a son, right? This is the son of God. We can talk about being a part of God's family and that we are in Christ, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters in the family of God, right? But Jesus, the son, is far different than what we will ever be or experience. There are similarities. We are being made like him progressively as we've learning in Philippians, that he started a good work in you and he'll bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And that that work that he's doing is to make us more like Jesus but we will never be the son of God. None of us could be given as a small baby to the world to accomplish God's true mission. He is not just a son. He is the son, the son of God, the only of the father filled with grace and truth as we see in John 1:14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is not just another good teacher. He's not just another good religious model to follow. He's not just like Abraham, Moses, and Joseph, and all those guys that came before. He is the only Son of God, and we must revere him in that way. A son given would certainly be an extreme gift. But God spares nothing greater when he gives us his only Son. Can you imagine being so serious, so zealous about a mission that you had that you'd be willing to give away a child in order to see it done? And for the benefit of whom? Rebellious sinners. You know, Jesus said that... <laughs> okay, God, this is incredible, and we've heard this before, but God shows his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't send Jesus for good people because there are no good people. None of us are good, not even one. When we look at the standard of God, we fall incredibly short. But Jesus does not. And he takes our place. It's incredible. He gives it. I could never give my child away. Not even to a friend. Not even to a relative. But to think to give my child away to an enemy 
Someone who was against me, who had, who, who had actively worked to bring me harm and say, I would like to give you something. It's the greatest gift I, I could give you. It's my only son. And this is not a gift where someone receives it and says, I'm not ready to take care of a baby. Jesus does not come into the world needing anything from us. Not even as a child. As a child, he was still the Christ who, in, all, in him, all things held together. In him, all things were made and they're made for his glory. I heard um, on the radio here, and I wish I could, could have written it down, but it was, it, was, it, was a, it was an old Christmas carol and they'd put a new chorus into it. And they said something about how when Jesus was a baby, even though he couldn't speak, he was already calling us to himself. Just by being there, just by coming to this earth and being born like any one of us, but completely different than any one of us. Here we see God's plan for his glory to shine for all to see. This is what he is truly zealous for. What is this, the zeal of the Lord all about? God is zealous for his own glory. And this is the mutual goal, both of the father and of the son. So look at John chapter 17, speaking of the garden. John 17, verse 1, the beginning of Jesus' prayer before he would be betrayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Why did I come to this earth? Did I come to save sinners? Yes. But that's just the means that I'm using to get to a greater goal of glorifying God. This is not only the goal of the Father and the Son, but it's also the goal of the Spirit. We see earlier in the book when Jesus is talking to his disciples about the Spirit of God coming. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in, into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he speaks, he will speak and he will declare to you the things I'm sorry, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Trinity is, is wrapped up in this zealous goal of bringing glory to God for all to see. And of course, this gives light to our last, last verse here in verse 7 in the very end. We understand the extent of God's zeal to accomplish all his purposes. Never was a child born under such weight of glory and joy, of wonder and amazement, or even of impending sorrows. So with so many new children in our midst today, and Madison Clausen um, only days into her life at home, and more babies to come, even in the weeks ahead, so many opportunities to observe an illustration right before your eyes. If you don't get to take one of these babies home today, please don't try to take a baby home that's not yours. But if you don't get to, you know, enjoy that, that great thing in this very moment today, make sure that you look at one of these beautiful babies around that, and they're all going to come back up from the nursery and think about what Mary and Joseph must have thought looking into the face of God as they held him in their arms. What? It's incredible. But this is the illustration. And so why does Jesus come as a baby? He comes because it is the way that we understand the preciousness of Jesus, God the Son, to his Father. He wasn't precious because he came as a sweet newborn baby, but rather the value of Christ could only be properly conveyed to us through his coming as a baby. 
because we see it as his incarnation, as he's born, we see the preciousness of him, we see the, the, an illustration of what God thinks of in, in terms of Jesus. Not that he, he, he demeans him and thinks, oh, you're just a little baby, but that idea of the preciousness, that respectful dignity that we give to life, right? And then at the cross, we see all of that turned around and taken away because God the Father turns his back on the Son at the cross. That's why Jesus says, Father, why have you forsaken me? It's, it's an incredible story that we start with at Christmas. So the sweetness of the little ones among us today are a gospel picture to each of us. Looking at new life, we ought to recognize that our greatest reason for valuing life is because it's a gift from the author of life and that his greatest gift is the life of his son for us. In what ways is he unique? How does he stand out against other great leaders in the Old Testament? First, he will uphold the government. We already saw in the first part of this passage that this gift of a son is not limited to just the nation of Israel, but it is for all people, just as we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 12, backtracking from our passage about the shepherds, five verses to say, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That's why at, the, at our Christmas story of the birth of Christ, we, we look at two groups of people. We look at the shepherds who come to see Jesus, the poorest of the poor. And then we see, and, and, and nearby, right? Shepherds who were near to the town and walked to Bethlehem and, and got there to see the baby Jesus. And then we talk about wise men who came from far away with precious and expensive gifts. Rich, poor, near, far, whatever your ethnicity is, doesn't matter. This gift of the son is for all people. This son who takes upon his shoulder the weight of the government, breaking the yoke, the rod, and the staff from the shoulder of his people in verse 4. You should see that comparison there um, as, as we see that it's, it's these, the yoke of the burden, the staff on the shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, oppressor. The shoulder of God's people is contrasted with the shoulder of God himself upholding the government, the whole world on his shoulder. He removes oppression from his people. He brings his good rule to bear over all. This future hope is why God's people will never be satisfied by any other form of man-made government. The starting point of gospel-centered political perspective must be that we point our hope in no man-made institution, but in God's working towards the coming of Christ's perfect and complete rule. We see at the end of verse 6 a list of names. These are the things that he as the king of kings will be known for. He will be called. People will notice this about him and in his rule that he is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. And his wonderful counsel, there will be no situation that he cannot speak into your life regarding. Jesus applies to everything that you're facing in this life. And he can give you truth to face it in a righteous, God-glorifying way. He's the mighty God. There will be no sin, no human-made um, uh, power that would come against God's people that will rule them eternally. Only God himself will be the mighty God who will do away with all of his enemies such that no matter what we face here on earth, if somebody, if, if the government changes their mind suddenly and busts in here and puts us all in prison for worshiping Jesus on a Sunday morning, one day it will be over and we will be with him and when we're with him, 
we see him face to face, we will glory in the beauty of his plan and knowing that he has made all things right. As the everlasting father, he's not a king like Rehoboam who says, I'm going to discipline you even worse than my father was. You thought he was bad? Wait till I come in. I'll make you respect me. He's the everlasting father. He's one who comes to nurture and to guide and to love us, to lay down his life for us. And he's the prince of peace. And where does that peace end? Nowhere. In the end of verse 7, the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. A huge secret is revealed in verse 7. How could God fulfill his promise to David? Long ago, generations before Jesus set foot on the earth, God promised to David that there would always be a descendant of his on the throne ruling over God's people. And this promise is reaffirmed in Psalm 87, 1 through 4, when the psalmist writes, I will sing this of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You, God, have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Well, once God allowed the Babylonians to sack Judah and seemingly undid the Davidic dynasty, how could the promise come true? How could there always be someone on the throne of David when at one time in, Israel, in, in Israel's history, you could look at the throne of David and see nobody was sitting there? Just as we mentioned before that God works outside of the confines of time and space, his son has always been the rightful ruler of the kingdom of God's people. And by stepping down, we see him who was seated in heaven from eternity past come to the earth as a small newborn child, just as we read weeks ago in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. King David was a man. Though God himself commends him as being a man after God's own heart, we know still that he was flawed and sinful just as we are. Jesus then becomes the greater David. Where David's rule was imperfect, Christ's rule is perfect. Where David's rule was temporary, Christ's rule is forever. Where the peace that people enjoyed under David's reign lasted for a while, Jesus is the prince of all peace for all time. He will establish his throne, that is, from the beginning, and uphold his throne, that is, maintaining it, in justice and with righteousness from this time forth, that being, of course, when Isaiah wrote this, and forevermore. It's incredible. <sighs> he will ever lead decisively according to the right standard of God. People will be in awe of the way his authority simply stands as true and just. You can see this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus finished these things, anybody know what he was saying, by the way? Matthew 7, sort of in the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon. When he finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. 
And Matthew doesn't make a comment here about what they, you know, walking away saying, oh, you know, pluck out your eye if it causes you to sin. You know, it wasn't necessarily those specific things that Matthew points out here. It was that he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Right now, I'm just a scribe. I'm just pointing out to, to you what God's word says. But if Jesus were to come in here and ask to preach, I would say, oh, okay. <laughs> I would be like, yes, please. And it would be different because he would come and be the word of God. And if he lives inside of you by his spirit, then you experience that day by day as you walk with him. There will have been, nor will there ever be, one who so accurately and masterfully explains the righteousness of God and of his kingdom than the one who for us is our righteousness. So how will this all come to pass? Gives us the solution in the end of verse seven. We already jumped to the end earlier, but God is zealous to accomplish this. He is not just you know, clocking out of work, coming home, and then thinking, let me work on my rescue plan for all those people down there dying in their sin. What could I do differently? What could I add to that today? This is what God is about. He is about the work of saving sinners, bringing people into his flock. If we are ones whose hearts fill with wonder and joy at Christmas time, then we can look at God and see that if he's zealous about his rescue plan of the gospel that we celebrate at Christmas time, perhaps we ought to be zealous as well. I would not say it's a requirement that we embrace Christmas all in the same way. As we pointed out, it's not about Christmas trees, lights, and those kind of things in the songs. But Charles Dickens writes as one of the last lines of Ebenezer Scrooge, after he's woken up from his terrible nightmares and he's a changed man, he says, I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. And I can remember, I mean, I grew up on the Christmas Carol iterations, you know. Every cartoon character had one. You know, and I've seen like all of them. <laughs> and yet I can remember even being a small child and hearing those words and thinking, he's going to celebrate Christmas all year long? That gets kind of weird, doesn't it? Like what? But here's the thing. Ebenezer Scrooge was transformed by a radical truth that made his life completely different. And so you don't need to walk around with poinsettias everywhere you go all year long. But what you ought to do is walk around with the hope and the joy of the gift of Christ to you all year long. It's no passive thing that the Lord does by giving us his son. This is what we were created to do, receive the gift of the son of God. And what an awful thing it would be for us to reject him. Psalm 2.12 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. You've probably talked to people who don't know Christ, who might have an attitude of saying, I'm glad that that's for you, that's fine. I don't have anything against Jesus. I just want to do things my own way. I don't, I, I'm not trying to stop. I'll get out of the way. I'll, I'll hope that everything goes well. I can come and help you move tables and chairs and stuff, and that's fine. I just don't really want to be a part of all that spiritual stuff. I'd rather do other things. There's no gray area. It's not as though God's inviting you to a party and you say, oh, I'm not really feeling up to it. The heart who does not kiss the Son, who does not rejoice in the gift of God the Son, is an enemy of God the Son. Because what a terrible offense it would be if I were to offer you my child and say, this is a free gift. This is the best thing that I have on, on the whole world. And I want you to enjoy it. And you say, no, I got better things to do. I would be a little bit offended. Thankfully, I'll never have to practice that. But God in his love and his patience and his kindness and his goodness and his perfect righteous plan says, here is my son, my only son, whom I love. And I'm giving him to you. And those who reject Christ 
even out of passive wanting to land in a kind of gray area with God kind of mindsets, says, ah, no, no thanks. And grievously offend the beautiful and greatest gift that could ever be given. So there is no gray area regarding how we stand with the Messiah. Think on your evangelistic strategies. Do you present Christ to your non-believing friends as an all-satisfying, precious gift of God that he truly is? Jumping back to a verse that we skipped to verse 5 of today's passage, it reinforces that those two options, when it reinforces our two options of responding by either embracing and being joyful over the gift or rejecting it, it reinforces that in, in rejecting Christ, we are declaring war on him. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. We cannot just say that following Christ is like celebrating Christmas by decorating your house or not decorating your house. Following Christ is everything. And if we reject him, we've rejected everything. Hear the words of Paul to Titus again in chapter 2 of Titus, verses 11 through 13. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So today, we sing this song that we're going to end with in a little bit here differently than those who before Christ might have sung such a song. We look to Christ's second coming. We look back on his first coming with joy and gladness and motivation, knowing that when he comes again, he will not come as a small baby, but he will be coming as a conquering king, and he will take everything back for himself, and he will make all things right. May his gracious appearing be a foundation of faith for you this Christmas season. May you rest your hope fully on him, receiving this precious gift and looking to his glorious return.